don't see the connection. Well, nobody can without opening the back of your car. The back? The trunk compartment. Louis Ord's body's back there. Can I wait for you down the road? No, so. This is Operation Solo. I want you hurt. Either I get that Chandler gun or the slow broiler for you, even if we all cook. It's ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Ticklish Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing classic cinema. As always, I'm Kristen, joined once again by the lovely and amazing Samantha. Samantha, how are you? Great. I am so excited to talk about this movie. It's my favorite noir, so I'm surprised we haven't discussed it before. I almost said noir. <laughs> noir is going to be the theme for noir November. Although I feel very, very afraid talking about this movie because I think you and I are going to be it. Very different ends of the spectrum if people read my letterbox review when I watched this. If we were too polite for a noir episode, we should be talking in harsh tones. Moxie. We need more moxie between the two of us. We're talking about 1947's Dead Reckoning and the career of Lisbeth Scott. Who better to talk about Lisbeth Scott than Alan Rohde himself? Alan, how are you? Couldn't be better. Kristen, Samantha, great to be here with you. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. It's always great to get to talk to you about anything, noir included. Samantha's been coming up with some killer episodes. I just need to reiterate how she makes my job incredibly easy in that I actually am not doing anything. She's just coming up with ideas and I do them. But Samantha, can you talk a little bit about how this film came into your life and Elizabeth Scott, because I know that until we started talking about this, I knew of Elizabeth Scott, but I knew nothing else about her or this film. It's really hard to pinpoint exactly the first time that I saw this film. As you guys know, I've seen a ton of Humphrey Bogart films at this point, probably approaching 40, still not as many as I would like, but decent amount. I even named my new dog, Bogey. That's how much I love him. Bogey, our unofficial ticklish business mascot. Exactly. I am trying to currently keep him pacified with chews. Dead Reckoning, I probably discovered more in the latter half. It definitely wasn't the first Bogart film I ever saw, but it wasn't the last. It struck me. Something about it. I know we're going to talk about it. It's not a flawless movie. It's not an Oscar winner or even an Oscar nominee, but... There's just something about the writing and the acting that I love, and I love the pairing of Bogart and Elizabeth Scott. Elizabeth Scott, really, the stars are aligning with this recording because we're approaching Elizabeth Scott's centennial. We're approaching the 75th anniversary of this film. And, of course, Alan's upcoming book about Elizabeth. So I'm just really excited that we're able to get all this together in one place and talk about it. That's great. I recently did a commentary on this movie. So fortunately, I can remember some of that because it was somewhat recently. It's a really interesting film, but it's not the film that comes to mind when someone says, talk about a great Humphrey Bogart film. And no one is going to say, oh, yeah, Dead Reckoning. It never comes up. But that doesn't mean that it's not worthy and that it has a lot of things to offer. One of the interesting things was the different stages that Humphrey Bogart was at in his career and Elizabeth Scott 
was in in her career and her own observations about working with Bogart and working on this movie were quite illuminating, quite interesting. And she gave a very detailed late in life interview, I think in the late 80s, and talked a lot about this movie, which was quite interesting, and how she got along with Bogart, whom she had a lot of respect for, obviously. This was her third or fourth movie. And by this time, Hal Wallace was starting to lend her out. And the comparison had already been drawn as Elizabeth was the threat and comparing her to Bacall. And interestingly enough, at the beginning, Wallace kind of fought that. But of all the areas of filmmaking that Wallace was a master of, and he was a master of just about everything, publicity was one thing that he knew inside and out. Wallace started out as a refrigerator salesman who came from Chicago to Hollywood when his father ran off. His father was a degenerate gambler, ran off. So he moved his tubercular mother and his sisters out here. And his first job was managing the downtown Warner Theater in downtown L.A. And from there, he ended up at Warner Brothers, and he was the director of publicity there. In fact, one of his early jobs was being the minder of Rin Tin Tin during the 1920s, who, by the way, was Jack Warner's favorite actor because Rin Tin Tin never asked for a raise and he never complained about the food in the commissary. By this time, Wallace had left the glory years of Warner Brothers because he had his falling out with Jack Warner, which culminated in when Casablanca won the Best Picture Oscar in 1944. Wallace, who produced the film and was intimately involved in all aspects, and Jack Warner, who had nothing to do with it other than the Warner Shield, the Warner family, where Wallace was sitting, blocked him and prevented him from going to the stage, and Jack Warner ran up and took his Oscar. So they were on marked time. But Wallace came to embrace the whole threat thing, comparing Elizabeth Scott with Bacall, because that was what people were writing about. That's what they were talking about. And that old saw, any publicity is better than no publicity at all. So he lent her out to Harry Cohn for this movie, got a lot of money, and kept most of it. Because of all the things Hal Wallace loved, and he loved Elizabeth Scott, they were lovers. A more mansplaining term, if you will, would be, say, Elizabeth was his mistress because he was married, but they were lovers for a great deal of time. I think from the time she first got to Hollywood and when he signed her until the early 1950s. Hal Wallace made her into a movie star. There's no question about that. And when you read through all the papers, the amount of work he put in to every nuance. In other words, when he lent her out, he had final say over her hairstyle, her wardrobe, the photographs, everything having to do with her appearance on screen, how Wallace created that and managed that. It's kind of a Pygmalion love story, really, of how Wallace and Elizabeth Scott. Dead Reckoning is one of her better performances. It's a very, very credible movie. And it was a lot of fun doing the commentary on it and getting into all the details of the setting of the film and the supporting cast. 
the film is good. John Cromwell's a good director. And he went way back with Bogart when Bogart was doing a young man on stage with the tennis anyone in the 20s. And John Cromwell was a stage director. So they knew each other. Bogart had directorial approval by this time in his career. And he was very comfortable with Cromwell. Elizabeth was not. Elizabeth felt that Cromwell was more obsessed with, you missed your mark by two inches. He was very, very technical with her. Her whole life at this point was her career. So in retrospect, I don't think Cromwell was one of her favorite directors. There's so much to her performance in this movie. I'll say before we start deconstructing it. The movie itself did not work for me. Her performance in the movie is the highlight of the film. And I come to Elizabeth Scott from her later works. I remember seeing Too Late for Tears. That was one of the first ones I saw. You can see the comparisons, the surface level comparisons to Lauren Bacall. Both have very deep voices. Both are blonde. But yet I feel like Elizabeth Scott always played somebody that was a bit harder. And I don't necessarily know if that's true, but I feel like she could take a punch probably better than like Lauren Bacall could or throw a punch better than Lauren Bacall. She, she seems sturdy. She certainly could take one from Dan Duryea in Too Late for Tears. <laughs> Even the poster, he's slapping her around. I, I have the one sheet where the one sheet is Dan Duryea backhanding Elizabeth Scott, and she's falling backwards like this. And then the writing is, kid, you're in the big leagues now or something like that. And when I introduced this some years ago at Union Station, one of the people at the L.A. Transit that sponsored this screening, along with several others that I was involved in, said, Alan, when you do your introduction, and I said, let me guess, you'd like me to put the whole thing of Dan Duryea slapping women into context. And she said, you understand exactly. I was able to do that. And I also had Dan Duryea's son there, Richard, which was fun. That's part of a era that is long gone and frequently has to be explained or put into historical context because it's 2022, not 1949. When I think of that, I think that she's also an actress, or at least her persona is one that could hold her own in a fight just as much compared to some other noir actresses like Jean Tierney or somebody else that just seems a bit more delicate, which I appreciate. And overall, this movie, I feel like, suffers from being a noir in the sense that it has all the noir tropes, laughably so in some instances. For people who haven't seen the movie... This is told predominantly in flashback by Humphrey Bogart's character, Rip Murdoch, which I kept thinking they were calling him Rick, which I was just like, oh, it's Casablanca. But no, his name is Rip. He learns his friend is going to be awarded the Medal of Honor, but his buddy disappears before they can take pictures, which is never a good sign. So Murdoch decides to go AWOL, try to figure out why his friend has run off. That is solved very quickly in the sense that his buddy is recovered in a car crash where his corpse is burned to a crisp and realizes that all of this has to do with how his friend was accused of killing an old man because he was in love with his wife, Coral, played by Elizabeth Scott. Of course, there's far more to the story than that, but it's a pretty good jumping off point. I watched the trailer for this 
I love Alan, you bringing up the threat because they really do emphasize in the trailer that she is this bright new star. And I read that this was originally supposed to be Rita Hayworth. Hayworth didn't want to do it. And I just kept thinking, knowing that, watching this movie and trying to imagine Rita Hayworth in this film. And I couldn't see it because even though I feel like the movie has some flaws in its writing and Coral Chandler feels like an amalgamation of so many other femme fatales that we've seen so much so that her name, again, kept reminding me of Cora Smith from Postman. I couldn't see Rita Hayworth playing this character. Oh, I could. I yeah, I'm going to disagree with you. I'm all for the disagreement. The whole thing of Coral Chandler being a nightclub shantuzi and singing and dancing would have had much more heft with Rita Hayward than Elizabeth Scott because Liz played three or four movies where she sings and every time it was dubbed. I can't quite remember the name of the woman who dubbed her, but it was the same one. And actually, when her movie career had about paid out, she cut an album that I have, Elizabeth Scott did, and she's got a really good voice. She can sing. Why they did this, it's typical Hollywood type of decision-making and so forth. But I thought Rita Hayworth, this would have been something that would have been tailor-made for her. And it was somewhat very similar to Gilda, only not as good, and she didn't want to do it again. And she was probably feuding with Harry Cohn. Rita had a somewhat tumultuous personal life, so I'm not sure exactly what was going on at that point or why she turned it down, but she did. So he borrowed, Harry Cohn borrowed Elizabeth Scott and did this. One of the interesting things is Elizabeth Scott said that at this point in her career, her career was everything. She didn't have hobbies. In fact, she kept doing these, all of the movie magazine interviews, and they'd say, what's your hobby? She didn't know what to say because she didn't have a hobby. Her hobby was being in the movies and going to the studio and working and working hard and long hours. So finally, she was in Swab's drugstore one day, and she saw all these glass animals, these little bric-a-bracs that Mr. Schwab had a little elephants and rhinoceros and stuff made out of glass. And she said to him, I want to buy those. He said, how many? She said, all of them. And she paid like $80 for all these things. And the only reason she did that is that now when she got interviewed, she'd say, oh, I collect glass animals. And she said, then, of course, once it got printed in the magazine, all these fans started sending her all these glass animals. So she said she in her house, she had all these glass animals all over the place. And she said, I only did it so I'd have an answer to say, what is my hobby? Bogart, at that time in his career, he was in his 40s. He was with Lauren Bacall making movies, unless he was with his buddies like John Huston and having fun with them. Making movies, it was a job. It wasn't a means to an end. So Bogart would get there in the morning, and a lot of times he wouldn't know his lines. So he'd mess around, he'd come to the set late. So Elizabeth would have to wait for him because he was the star. When they would talk, he was professional and everything, but at five o'clock, time to go home. It was in his contract, I'm done, it's time to go home. He wanted to go home to Lauren and he wanted to be out on his boat, the Santana on the weekends. She said that he gave me the impression that 
he thought acting was kind of a sissified type of thing for a man to be doing, that he would rather be doing something else, like being out on his boat or being a sailor. She said, for me, my career at that point, I think she was 24, was everything. It was the be-all and end-all. And there was a big age difference. So you had a real generation gap, if you will, between the two of them. But they got on because Bogart was a top pro and she was learning and so forth. And she understood the star system. She understood that she was the newbie and Humphrey Bogart was Humphrey Bogart in 1946. There's a great breakdown. It's from Kevin Starr, the historian who talked about how your Rita Hayworths, your Ann Sheridans, your Ida Lupinos, they have this hard quality to them. He calls it an invisible shield of attitude and defense that suggested that times were getting serious. That really does apply to this movie. John Cromwell as a director does not tend to get enough credit compared to some of the other directors of the era. And he directed a lot of movies. What's wonderful to watch about some of his films, even something like a weepy for Hanky film, like the one that I'm trying to think of with Carol Lombard and is it Jimmy Stewart? Made for each other? It might be that, which feels like a very standard, weepy, romantic drama, feels very ominous with the way that Cromwell lights things. And it feels very dark and frightening, even though that's not at all the story that is being told on screen, which I really appreciate. He has a lot of that here. Bogart even has that really good speech, which supposedly I have heard was based on something he actually talked about, about men putting women in their pockets and then taking them out when they need them to have dinner together. This feels like a very, I hate to use the term existential because existential think it's overutilized, but it feels more complex than your standard noir, even though the noir tenants feel overbearingly present at times. I liked Bogart's line in the beginning when he's in the train and they're both in the army. They find out about the Congressional Medal of Honor. The young fellow who disappears shows him a picture of Elizabeth Scott, and he makes a comment, well, she should be up on a piano with the president. <laughs> of course, that was a reference to the famous picture of his wife, Lauren Bacall, up on the piano at the National Press Club with President Truman finger in the keys. So I thought that was a cute inside joke that he might have ad-libbed or they dropped in the script. And then when he says, Cinderella with a husky voice, who would know more about women with husky voices than Humphrey Bogart at that point in his life? There was some of that insider dialogue stuff that appealed to me. There was a sense of humor. And then they're in the Gulf Coast what is it called? Gulf City. So it's kind of like Biloxi, Mississippi, New Orleans. And then they're in a nightclub when there was no air conditioning and Elizabeth Scott's wearing a fur coat in the summer at Gulf Coast. Those little things. The noir tropes are all over the place, starting with the flashback. The noir nightclub with the sinister owner, with Morris Karnofsky who was a great actor, by the way, a really good actor. And Marvin Miller is the dog heavy, the henchman with the white jacket. But I mean, that's all part of noir. We have to enjoy that. I certainly enjoy it. I love Humphrey Bogart in anything, but the thing that draws me the most to this particular film 
is definitely the writing. And it's weird to say because it's definitely not permeated everybody's noir consciousness these days, even among a lot of noir fans. But this is right up there with Gun Crazy. They have really good scripts, but I just think marketing-wise, maybe it wasn't all there because it's really hard to make a movie last as far as its legacy goes when you have one studio does it, but they borrow somebody from one studio and they borrow somebody else from one studio and things get a little tangled up in the copyright process, as we know. Luckily, this film hasn't been lost, but it definitely isn't screened and isn't put in front of our faces as much as something like Casablanca is, which is owned by Warner Brothers. That has a lot to do with this film's legacy, even though I think it's really good. I hate to say, and I really am afraid to say this in front of the Elizabeth Scott biographer, Elizabeth is the weak point of this film. I disagree. I think she's the strongest point. That's the thing. I love looking at her. I love her character. She's really trying her best for the experience she's had. I just think of Rita Hayworth in this and I'm like, she really would have had that raw emotion if she had presented something similar to what she did in Gilda. This would have just been a home run of a movie. I hate to say it. If it's your opinion and you think it's true, there's nothing wrong with saying it. And I tend to agree with you. Look, let's be honest. Elizabeth Scott was not some great dramatic actress. She was not Olivia de Havilland. She was not Betty Davis. And you can argue she never became what Lauren Bacall became later on in her career. She looks good. She sounds good. She moves good. But you could tell Bogart was trying to share with her. And I don't think he was getting a lot back. And maybe it was because she was nervous working with him. She was still very young. The director is saying, you missed your marks. I don't know. But obviously, I think Rita Hayworth would have been stronger. As to the script, the script was written by Steve Fisher, who's one of the great all-time noir screenwriters whose novel, I Wake Up Screaming, was adapted for the screen. And that put him on the map. And then what else is there? Johnny Angel, The Lady in the Lake, I Wouldn't Be in Your Shoes, Roadblock, The City That Never Sleeps, Hell's Half Acre. Some of the best of the best. Steve Fisher has this long film noir resume, usually with a conflicted but resolute hero marching to the beat of his own drummer, fighting off the blandishments of some femme fatale, alluring female that is conniving in some way. Obviously more to it than that. That's part of the plot. But Steve Fisher was a top-notch writer and the ruffles and flourishes in this plot and some of the dialogue, you can tell that that's a pro at work. I always say my favorite author is Oscar Wilde and it's that flowery, romantic, almost overdone dialogue and scene setting that really shines here. I just went away from this movie with some some of this dialogue between Bogey and Elizabeth Scott. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so good. I just pull these lines out and they're just some of the greatest things. I don't know. I feel like this is a hidden I like that little bit where he's in the hotel room on the phone. Bogart puts on this uh, Southern accent and says, oh, I need some of that apple pan dowdy, which Dinah Shore's song, Shoe Fly Pie and Apple Pan Dowdy, was a big hit in 1946. He drew from that. And then where they're opening the morgue drawers, like filing cabinets, peeking in, and 
Charles Kane, the policeman, goes, there he is, crisp as bacon. And it's like, oh, okay. Great imagery with the words. Elizabeth Scott never became a huge actress. We don't put her, unfortunately, in the same vein as your Lauren Bacall's and your Rita Hayworth's. There was a police raid in Hollywood where her name was brought up in a black book associated with some sex workers. They posted an article that implied that she might have been involved and that maybe she was a lesbian. The story that I had read was that she was told not to make a big deal out of the article and just let it go. And instead, she sued Confidential Magazine and that that effectively destroyed her career. Is that true or were there other elements at play that kept her from being a bigger star? Like what you're hearing? Then consider becoming a Ticklish Biz Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. Our Powell, Ava, Lombard, and Taylor level supporters this year made our six-week Being Elvis series possible. And we're preparing to launch six weeks of The Thin Man in December. We're also a quarter shy of hitting our goal of devoting an episode to the howler of a biopic, 1976's Gable and Lombard. Check out the Ticklish Biz community on Patreon at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. Back to the show. It's partially true. The Confidential Magazine story was completely false. It was being used to try and shake her down. In other words, we won't print this if you give us somebody else. And in fact, the only thing that this vice cop who was corrupt claimed to have found in a black book was a phone number next to Elizabeth Scott, and the phone number was for a 20th Century Fox phone number. It wasn't her phone number. She wasn't even working there. It's all baloney. And as far as taking it easy and ignoring it, I don't know who would give her that advice because Confidential was sued by Maureen O'Hara. They were sued by Robert Mitchum, and they eventually got, the publishers got knocked off of their petard and the guy that was the publisher, he ended up shooting himself in the head in a taxi cab later on in life. There's been these stories that are legion that Elizabeth Scott was gay. And, you know, in 2022, who cares whether anybody's gay or not? And the only reason we're talking about this is because it had an effect on her career and her life. What I've been able to find out is that she had a lot of male lovers and almost a husband, but I found no evidence that she was gay or any relationship that she had for whatever that means. I had someone tell me that she's gay because socially she was always by herself in the late 40s. Well, if you're the girlfriend of a very powerful married man who's a producer during holidays, guess what? You're going to be by yourself a lot. Being the other woman finally wore her out and she finally got tired of it, although she never lost any of her affection for Hal Wallace because I've read some of the letters. The relationship with Hal Wallace, the relationship she had with several other men in her life, those are facts. This whole thing about her being gay, all I've been able to divine from that is just a bunch of talk. Now, does that mean that she wasn't bisexual or she wasn't gay? I don't know. But so far, I haven't found any evidence of that. I will say that the Confidential Magazine thing certainly didn't help her career. But at that point, she was getting older. She was in her 30s. One of her last films was playing Elvis Presley's agent. 
the films that she was good in, like Dead Reckoning and Too Late for Tears, that era was over. She had aged out of that. We've already said she did not have the range to go do applause on Broadway like Lauren Bacall did, or she decided she didn't want to do that because what she did do is she pursued the singing for a while, cut an album, and she went back and took all kinds of psychology courses and university courses at UCLA. The notion that she turned into Norma Desmond and became this recluse living at her address on Hollywood Boulevard is absolutely false. She had a circle of friends and she was very, very independent and very careful about stuff. She even made, what's the name of that book? The Film Encyclopedia by Ephraim Katz. Remember that when that was the Katz Meow? And that came up and it went into the Confidential Magazine article. It also said she did commercials on TV for cat food. She took umbrage at this, wrote them a letter saying, you need to change this. This is not true. I've never done any TV commercials, certainly not for cat food. And the Confidential Magazine thing, you brought it up out of context. It doesn't belong in my biography. And then she had a lawyer write the publisher a letter. They actually recalled the film encyclopedia, put in her biography that she wrote and approved and put in because I don't know whether she was bluffing completely, but she was saying, if you don't do this, you're going to get sued. So they pulled it back and redid it. She was very sensitive about being portrayed in the way that Confidential Magazine portrayed her. And from what I've been able to divine, the Confidential Magazine thing was totally fictional. Watching Dead Reckoning and even watching something like Too Late for Tears, what I appreciated about this movie and her performance is she really is the only woman you need. Like even in something like Postman. You have Audrey Totter very briefly as this other depiction of femininity in contrast. But I read that she was very competitive with some of the other actresses. And some of the other actresses were very competitive with her. Like Stanwyck didn't want her build on the same level as her when they did Martha Ivers. Actresses getting along or not getting along is a story as tale as old as time. We love when they're feuding. Was that true in terms of her being very competitive with other actresses of the era? Oh, certainly. Certainly she was competitive. And the other thing is all the other actors knew that the producer of the film and one of the biggest producers in Hollywood was her boyfriend. When Wallace had his stock company and he had Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas and Wendell Corey and Don DeFore and Elizabeth Scott under contract and were making movies like I Walk Alone, Elizabeth Scott leaves Wallace's office in tears over some spat. Kirk Douglas said it was difficult to work with somebody under those situations where the executive producer's girlfriend is there. There's also a really good actress that Wallace had under contract called Colleen Miller, I believe. He didn't know what to do with her because she was supposed to get the parts, but guess who ended up with the parts? Elizabeth did. And Colleen Miller would get a small part here or the rude woman in the nightclub in I Walk Alone. And she was good. She played Arthur Kennedy's sister in Too Late for Tears. Was a really good actress. But under Wallace, she didn't amount to much because all the choice parts were going to Elizabeth Scott. 
I certainly didn't make Colleen Miller happy. It's a unique double standard, I guess, is the term for it. You look at Norma Shearer being married to Irving Thalberg, and that brought not just choice roles, but this immense amount of respect. Maybe not from Joan Crawford. There was this respect and reverence for her being the wife of Irving Thalberg, whereas being the side piece of Hal Wallace probably didn't yield that same level of admiration. Rightly or wrongly, fairly, unfairly, it was a very sexist society, particularly in Hollywood during the 1940s and 50s. One can say it still is. Women's roles were very, very prescribed. There was a great deal of difference between being Mrs. Hal Wallace and being Hal Wallace's girlfriend or mistress, whatever term you want to use. To go beyond Dead Reckoning, we mentioned Too Late for Tears. Lisbeth Scott, to me, always feels like she bridges the gap between A-list femme fatale and character actors in terms of playing leading parts, but she has such a different style in her performance, playing opposite a Dan Durier. There feels like a sense of equality that is very fascinating because you can usually delineate your A and your B stars. There's more of an egalitarian playing field watching her in some of these performances, which is very different. (laughs) You also have to look at the era. As she was coming into her own, it was after World War II, and so the box office was going to tank. Divestiture, where the studios lost their movie theaters, was going to happen, and television. So the whole movie industry was undergoing this tumultuous change. It was becoming more and more focused on a smaller and smaller group of movie stars who could sell a picture. Cary Grant, Burt Lancaster, and Kirk, Rita Hayworth, and people like that, Ava Gardner. And there was a real finite number of people that you could build a movie around that you knew was going to make money because of the stars. She was almost one of those people, but then by the late 40s, lending her out to an independent United Artist, where Wallace virtually controlled the whole production of the scene, and most of the people in Too Late for Tears were his actors under contract, it was cash and carry. And then it was lending her out to Lippert, make movies in England. And when you look at the financial returns on what she was getting paid and what Wallace was getting paid, it's on this downward arc. But I will say this for Hal Wallace, he tried to keep her on the payroll and he was still paying her into the 1960s, paying her money, still trying to get her to come back. I've been told that even after he married Martha Heyer and he had his book ghostwritten in 1980, Martha Heyer said, why don't you tell the story about you and Elizabeth? And he didn't want to do that because of her privacy. She was certainly still around and his image. He wasn't going to go there. But I've heard that he would sit at home in Rancho Mirage and watch her movies over and over again. I don't know how accurate that story is, but that is a story that I've read. He was in love with her. There's no question about that. And she loved him. And there's no question about that. A relationship like that married to the motion picture industry. Some of it was she knew quite well that she had hitched herself to someone who could make her a movie star. So I'm certainly there was a self-serving piece to that. 
But I think there was also a personal piece where they really loved each other because she made the decision to end that part of their relationship, much to his disappointment. The types of films that Elizabeth Scott was in, the noir films, Martha Ivers, the company she keeps where she plays a parole officer, gets the occasional good role. And by the way, Elizabeth Scott hated Too Late for Tears, hated it. Hated it. No, I tried to, I tried to get her. I tried to get her to do anything about it, and she said, "I don't like that movie. I don't like that movie." She did like Pitfall very, very much. That was probably her favorite movie because she really liked Andre de Toth. Thought he was a great director, and de Toth was a swashbuckler as a man and charming. I mean, he charmed Marsha Hunt. Andre was a real character and a very good director. So she really liked that movie. But Too Late for Tears, she didn't like it at all. Did at she all. feel that the quality was bad? Or, or would no, you ever didn't figure like out why? Part. She didn't, uh, don't like think, her part. I don't think being a selfish shop until you drop serial killer of men really appealed to her. And let's face it, was Lauren Bacall playing those parts? Hell no. Those are not the parts that are going to make you and keep you up as a top star of poisoning people. It's fun to watch. And maybe it's a stretch as an actor. She wanted to become and remain a movie star and she wanted good parts. By that time, by the end of the 40s, Hal Wallace was just lending her out like a library book and getting what he could on her because the only thing that Hal Wallace loved more than Elizabeth Scott was money. Wallace, I made reference to him in my book on Michael Curtiz. I said, Hal Wallace could squeeze a nickel hard enough to make the buffalo keel over. And he could. You know pretty much all the amazing women of the old Hollywood era. I'd have to ask about meeting Elizabeth Scott in person. I mean, she didn't pass away until 2015. So I'm assuming that there were several interactions where you two met. I talked with her numerous times on the phone, and most of that revolved around me trying to lure her to my film festival in Palm Springs. And I'd say about three or four times she would say she's going to come. And then within a month, a week, a couple weeks out, I have to go to Scranton to do this. I have this. I have that. And about the third time she pulled that on me, I realized she ain't ever going to come. And so I quit inviting her. I did have one personal interaction with her. I helped program a series of films at the Academy. I think this was 2011, 12, called Oscar Noir, where they showed film noir movies that had been nominated for writing Oscars. And then, of course, they didn't have Eddie Muller. I introduce it. They had some Oscar-nominated screenwriter introduce it. But I helped them get the guests, and I got Jacqueline White, who I still get Christmas cards from at age 100, and Colleen oh, uh, Gray. Marvin Page got Elizabeth to come out for The Strange Love of Martha Ivers. My wife and I sat with her and chatted with her, and she was great. Turns out she had been to Trinidad, where my wife is from, and they talked about that and talked about shoes. Here she was. She was 87, and she's trying to look like she did in Desert Fury. 
it doesn't work when you're 87. She had a scar here because I believe she had some sort of skin cancer and she had had plastic surgery and it wasn't good. I'm sitting with her. What amazed me is she was so tiny. She was just really diminutive, very slender, very thin, very well turned out in a black pantsuit and was very nice. So I was sitting with her and I said, you know, it's really great that you came out and there's a lot of people that are so glad to see you, your fans, such high regard and blah, blah, blah. And I felt that she was nervous. So I was trying to make her feel relaxed. And then I ended this sentence with, so how do you feel about that? She looked at me and she said, frankly, I'm quite nervous. I'm not comfortable. And it dawned on me that with the exception of Marvin, Page, and perhaps me, who she only knew over the phone, all these people in the room, she didn't know any of. And she was a woman who was 87 years old in this situation. So I just reached over, took her hand, squeezed her hand, and I said, don't feel nervous, you're among friends. And she squeezed my hand back and she said, thank you, Alan, I appreciate that. So they did the thing, they showed this short film. I did an interview with Kirk Douglas it wasn't even an interview. It was filming Kirk talking to me. I'm not in the frame. And he talks about The Strange Love of Martha Ivers, or his first film. I got to spend about three hours with him, and that was amazing. He did this whole thing, and I said, do you want me to ask you any questions? And he goes, nope. They used to call me One Take Douglas. You be the judge. And he rattles all this stuff off. Felt like Eric von Stroheim in Sunset Boulevard. I go action. And he snaps his head up and starts talking. He talked for about eight or 10 minutes. And he says, and that's why I'll always remember the strange love of Martha Ivers, my very first picture. And I said, cut, print. And Kirk leans in and he goes, what do you think? Pretty foot, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> he was still Spartacus at age 90. He was still we, Spartacus. We all have our different opinions of Kirk on this podcast. Yeah. I am a big Kirk fan, so I love hearing that. What I'll say about Kirk as a person, at 90 years old, you're not the same person you were when you were 40. You're not. And he had been through a stroke. He was talking through an helicopter crash, the marriages, sons, a son that died. I just have to say he couldn't have been nicer could not have been nicer to me. And we had a great time. There's only one Kirk Douglas. Go watch I, Detective Story. I will say as the non-Kirk Douglas fan of the, the podcast, I have to appreciate that story. I can't, I can't yeah. not love it. Liz did her thing there and it went okay, but it's this unique dichotomy where you have someone who retired and wants their privacy and has a circle of friends that is aging. And yet she stayed in the same house that I think Hal Wallace probably bought for her on Hollywood Boulevard and lived there from the late 40s until she died in 2015. So she was in the most public of professions with a spotlight with the Confidential Magazine. And yet she was just a private person. At that point, an 87-year-old woman that thought to meet the expectations of her fans, she needed to try to keep looking like Desert Fury in 1947 when she was in Technicolor and just absolutely a knockout. And no one can do that. 
at the time I felt really badly for her. But as I've learned more about her personally, she was a really strong woman, a really strong independent woman who changed as we all did over time after leaving Hal Wallace and the movies in the rearview mirror. She crafted a productive, comfortable life for herself. I have a lot of respect for that. I have to ask how the biography is coming, if you can give us any updates on it. Well, there's no updates. I'm, I'm organizing all my research material. I need to batten down the hatches and start writing, and I need to stop taking all these other jobs <laughs> of, of doing all this other stuff that I do. When people come to you and they ask you to do stuff and it's stuff that you love to do and that you know and you're good at and they're paying you, it's hard to say no. And I have another book that's coming out in probably February or March, a short book I wrote during the COVID lockdown about the movie Blood on the Moon and the noir Western and the origin of the noir Western and Robert Wise and Robert Mitchum and Howard Hughes. RKO pictures and all of this stuff. And I had a lot of fun with that. It's a short book. It's probably about 150 pages, but I had a lot of fun with that. And that's coming out in a matter of several months. I'll keep working away on Liz. It'll get done. Remember, Michael Curtiz took me six years. That's know. a tome though. That's the yeah, I'm not, definitive. Elizabeth, I'm never going to write another book about someone who directed like almost 200 movies. Every well-known picture known to man in those years. Yeah, exactly. So, but I just have to say, compact career. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The shorter filmography, I have not seen Blood on the Moon yet, but it's one of those that's been on the top on my watch list for the longest time. So mm -hmm. I'm glad there's going to be a companion book. I'm very excited. Oh for yeah, that. this was really fun to do. I was able to get Robert Wise's original script with all his notes. Frederick Glidden, a.k.a. Luke Short, who was the dean of Western Writers, wrote the script, and I got access to his paper and all the production files. I had a lot of fun doing it, going to the whole roots of how film noir and the Western intersected after World War II and went on into the 50s and went into television. I hope people like it when it comes out. Final thoughts on Lisbeth. I'm not a big fan of Dead Reckoning, but I would recommend people check out Too Late for Tears or Pitfall. I know you mentioned Pitfall, even Pitfall's though... Pitfall's a great movie. Andre Pitfall's great. Pitfall, for my money, is one of the signature post-World War II noirs because it takes the American atomic family and turns it upside down. Even the ending where Jane Wyatt, well... We're going to stay together. And she says, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Movies didn't do that, didn't address any of that. The way they address infidelity, how everything happened. And of course, Ray Burr, the prototypical noir heavy. It's a really, really good movie. Elizabeth, we're still here talking about her. She stood the test of time. There was something about her that was unique how she looked, the movies that she was in. And she brings back an era of Hollywood where Emma Matzo from Scranton, New Jersey, can become Elizabeth Scott movie star and be in a movie with Kirk Douglas and Barbara Stanwyck and Van Heflin and hold her own. To me, all of that and what happens afterward, that's a story worth telling and it's a story worth remembering. 
Well, I can't wait till you tell it whenever the book shakes out. We might be waiting a minute, but I'm all for it. If you finally turn us down and tell us you can't be on the podcast anymore, I'm assuming you're knee deep in writing the definitive Elizabeth Scott biography. I'm ready for it. Oh, not, Kristen, not to put Kristen, too much pressure. Kristen, I'll never turn down Tickless Business. Don't you know that by now? We love to hear that. Love to hear that. Please let fans know where they can find you online, anything that they should be keeping an eye out for other than the book you have coming out in February. You can find me online at www.alankrode.com, A-L-A-N-K-R-O-D-E.com. That's going to close out this edition of Ticklish Business. As always, you can find us on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher Radio. We are on all social media platforms as well, including Twitter at Ticklish underscore biz, Facebook and TikTok and Instagram at Ticklish Biz. You can find me on Twitter at Journeys underscore film. Please consider giving my upcoming book, but have you read the book, A Purchase, wherever you get books. I also started a new newsletter on Substack called Christomania with a header designed by the wonderful Samantha talking about what I'm watching, what I'm reading, adaptations that maybe aren't in the book that I just wrote, all sorts of fun stuff. So be sure to subscribe to that. Samantha, where are you online? You can mostly find me on Twitter at Classic Film Geek, but you can find my blog at musingsofaclassicfilmatic.com and you can find my Cooking with the Stars posts over at classicmoviehub.com. And if you want to help us out with your money, we have a bustling Patreon at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz where we are inching super close. We've gotten some great patrons this last month. We thank all of them for their support. We're inching ever closer to finally talking about 1976's heinous biopic, Gable and Lombard. You know you want to hear us talk about James Brolin playing Clark Gable. In the meantime, we have all sorts of bonus content, including our recent Halloween episode of Double Features, where we talked about Village of the Damned, 1960 versus 1995, We're prepping to return to Christopher Reeve films in November with a look at Rear Window, both the Hitchcock film and the 1990s TV remake with Christopher Reeve that he made after his tragic accident, which is a very, very weird, interesting way to look at disability and remakes. That is all at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. We will be back in two weeks with a new episode. Till then.